0: mass transportation mode. You get in a pressurized tube and go up to 40,000 feet, and I don't even know this. Okay, this, this, if, you don't, if you are afraid of heights, this is not going to help you in the least. <clears throat> you know what autopilot is? That means no one is flying the plane. I am not okay with that. Uh, I, I paid good money for that ticket, and so did everyone else. And you're talking tens of thousands of dollars in seats that are bought... I should be paying that pilot enough to stay awake the entire flight and keep his hands on the yoke. And yet we entrust ourselves to a computer to make sure that everything goes just right. Now the purpose of that illustration is not to, you know, talk about my fear of computers taking over the world. It's not that. It's that this whole idea of autopilot while you may have never considered it when you've ever gotten on a plane, believe me, you'll think about it the next time you get on the plane. No, we've talked about it. The point is this, that sometimes even in our expression of our relationship with God, it's easy for us to get on autopilot. I mean, I like autopilot when our safety is involved in a pressurized tube flying 400 miles an hour at 40,000 feet. But it's possible to watch that video And then come to the realization that you can put a check in the plate without putting your heart there. That gets your attention? God doesn't want your money. He wants you. And that's a huge, hugely important thing because it's very easy. Traditions are a good thing. But sometimes traditions prevent us from being intentional because we just begin to go through the motions. And nowhere is that more evident than in this idea of our money and what we do with it. There are some folks who are under the misinterpretation that once you give your percentage to God, you have the right to do whatever you want with whatever remains. And just for you to hear this, to answer this, Does God just own what you give? God owns it all. And He's just as concerned what you do with whatever the percentage is that you don't give Him. If it's 90%, if it's 97%, He's just as interested in what you do with what you have left over as He is with your giving to Him. And so we come to a verse that isn't just um, taught badly. We don't even know how the verse goes. And so... uh, since we're talking about money, I thought kind of pun intended, I'd say please open your wallets to First Timothy chapter 6 and uh, we'll, we'll get going here. We're, we're going to look at First Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 and it really is one of those issues where that, that verse, I don't think it means what you think it means. And the reason it doesn't mean what you think it means is most people actually misquote the verse. They don't even get the quote right. How in the world are they going to build any kind of teaching on a verse that they don't even quote right? So, here's the principle correctly stated. Uh, kind of like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said that money is the root of all evil. Is that what the scriptures say? Not even close. Not even close. Just because the words are sometimes similar doesn't mean the meaning is actually in the same ballpark at all. Literally. What the scriptures say is that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. We don't need to go very far here in looking at the ver- this verse to know that money and the love of money are a hugely significant difference. Hey, here's the question. Can you use your money to glorify God? Absolutely. Some of you just had the opportunity to do that through the collection. Some of you have seen people in distress even this week because I, I, I hear about it. You've seen someone who's had a bad week and you've taken somebody out to lunch or you've gone to a movie with someone or you've cooked a meal for someone who's uh, in a hard time. You are using your resources to bless people. You are mastering your money. Your money's not mastering you. There's a huge difference between having money, which is never condemned in the scriptures, Wealth and riches are not categorically a bad thing. It's what you do with them that makes it bad. Loving money is hugely different. So it's not money, it's the love of money. It's not the root of all evil, but a root to all kinds of evil. There are other roots to sin too. The love of money is the root of all kinds of sins. Do you know something else that's a root sin too? Maybe even a bigger root sin than the love of money. Pride. Listen, how much how many things would we have on the list that pride have caused us, sins that pride has caused us to commit? It'd be a pretty long list. So we see the principle correctly stated. It's not money, it's the love of money that leads to all kinds of evil. How do we prove this principle from the scriptures? Why is it that the love of money is so completely and totally messed up? As we look in context at 1 Timothy, uh, Paul lays out, Four really simple instructions for us about why we need to guard against loving money. And the very first uh, point that we see here comes in verse 6. That the love of money ignores true gain, true wealth, true benefit. Now here's, here's a truth that is true no matter whether you're a Christian or not. Everybody wants a benefit. Everybody wants a blessing. Everybody wants something that is positive. So everyone is motivated towards gain. The question is are you aiming at true gain? Or are you aiming at, if there's true gain, what's the opposite of that? Fake gain. Wh- which wall is your ladder leaning on? Because when you get to the top, it's too late to make the change. You've got to do that when you're at the bottom. You climb up the ladder, it's messed up. Everybody is motivated towards gain. And here's what the Bible says in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is, does it say it's a gain? No, it says it's a great gain. We tend to think that financial upward mobility, that's a great gain. My net worth went up $5,000 this year. You know, that bonus, that, that, that corner office, that whatever, that's what gain is. And yet the Bible says, no, true gain is godly contentedness. Godliness with contentedness. I don't know that his intention is to make those two separate categories because aren't the most godly people that you know the people that are most content. Don't, that, don't those two seem to be descriptive of each other? He's not so much trying to say it, as much as he's trying to mash two concepts together: godly, contentedness. Now there's a contentedness that's not godly, and that's just fatalism. Kesarah okay, Sarah, what will be, what what will be will be. You know, I'm powerless to change anything, so I'll just suffer. That's not contentedness. It kind of looks like it, but it's not. Godly contentedness is recognizing that everything that we have has come from God. And we're just grateful for what we have. Everybody wants a wealth of some kind. And the Bible is saying that the truest gain we can get is spiritual, not financial. So why is it so hard for us to aim at true gain? Well, it's really hard to quantify I'll pick on Joel here. Let's say Joel's had a rough week, and we want to encourage Joel. So you know what we're going to do to encourage Joel? Everybody grab your wallet here for just a second. Any bills in there? Okay, everybody grab a couple bills, and let's just pass them over to Joel. Joel's going to be able to walk out of the service today, and he is literally going to be, going to be able to count his blessings. Hey, I got 300, I'm $300 blessed. blessed, $600 thus. Going once, going twice, sold for $1,000. Joel's going to come wash your car for a week, cut your grass, he's so grateful. It's easy to quantify. Now, the the challenge is, everyone says, oh yeah, wasn't church a blessing today? I've been in the South long enough to know that's not necessarily a compliment. Uh, What do we mean by that? It's hard to quantify, spiritual blessings and that's why i think because it's hard we have to think to understand spiritual blessings it's so much easier to to us for us to look at the wallet and go what's in there oh yeah now god's blessed me when he could be blessing you in all kinds of ways in oodles and oodles of ways over here you're just so dense that you're not doing the hard work of recognizing it so he says that the love of money ignores true gain It, it says that this is gain and the bible says it's really not. Finances are nice, but they're not the greatest blessing that God can give. His greatest blessings are spiritual. So do you want gain? I know you do. Non-Christians and Christians both want gain. Godly contentedness is the gain that you want. To be at peace with God and to be at peace with his gifts. Secondly, he says that the love of money has an ill-placed focus. It has an ill-placed focus. It's not focused in the right direction. You ever, you ever? um, I wear contacts, and have you ever, anyone else wear contacts? I see a lot of glasses in here. Have you ever, and maybe this is just me, I I didn't have coffee one morning, I put one contact in and forgot to put the other one in? It was a terrible, no good, very bad day. Uh, All day long, headache, I got, uh, what is going on? Everything's out of focus. And in the same way, when we have a love for money, Our focus is in the wrong spot. Look at verse 7. Paul quotes this this passage. He says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. What's the ill-place focus? The focus is this world. The focus is the here and now, this world and all its stuff. And guys, you have to be very careful about feeding this appetite. Um, Many of you know John and Brittany got married yesterday. and and Reed and I both have given them advice related to their finances, that just because you've gone from one income to two incomes joined together, and and maybe that rising tide has lifted all the boats, don't adjust your lifestyle now to your income. Stay simple. You don't need to buy all new furniture. You don't need to get a brand new car. It's okay to have the futon for like five years. Just be careful. You don't need... Uh, you don't need a big fancy dining room set. There's just two of you, you know? Family starts to come, you need more. The temptation is anytime you get a raise or any kind of income, you adjust your lifestyle to meet it. And then you never have any margin because your focus is on stuff. And we don't like, you don't like to think of yourself as a narcissistic materialist, but that's what we are. We're Americans. That is the definition of being an American. You're a narcissistic materialist. You're concerned about stuff. And he's saying, that's the wrong Focus. And so you have to be very careful about feeding this appetite because it never goes away. You get an income increase, you raise your lifestyle. You get an income increase, you raise your lifestyle. It gets really bad when your lifestyle actually goes above your income increase. Now you're all upside down. And so the challenge with this, having the wrong focus on the world and its things, is it is like drinking seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. And once you start to feed that appetite, then your, your belly can actually hold more. And so now it's not, you know, the 2014 isn't good enough. Now you need the 2018. Oh, no, no, 2019. You don't even care it's 2017. You're like, what is going on? So you've got to be careful because the more you feed it, the thirstier you become. Basically, what he's saying here is every single one of us entered life possessionless. And guess what? You will leave this life possessionless unless this picture is true. Well, there goes that sermon illustration. You've heard it said, you can't take it with you. This guy sure is trying. I'd hate to see what his funeral plot looks like, man. He's got a big old hole for all of his stuff. And this is a complete aside, okay? I know that you're good religious people. You don't want to think of yourself as pagans. But it was the Egyptians that buried their rulers with all their stuff, thinking that it would actually benefit them in in the afterlife. And you don't worship... The sun god, or the fertility god, or the river god. You just worship the money god. You've heard it said. You, you know this because you'll be able to finish the phrase for me. He who dies with the most. Oh, you know this one. Don't even pretend like you don't. He who dies with the most toys wins. What's he win? What's the prize? What's he win? You're not going to like this, okay? But everything that you own belongs to Goodwill. Every single thing you own, no matter how nice it is or how fancy it is, what happens when you're gone? Everything you own will end up in a Goodwill shop at some point. Maybe, maybe it already has, and maybe it's already on a second or third life with you. But everything you own belongs to Goodwill. And like, if we would just realize that, can't we just take a little... Uh, don't need to be in the rat race. I don't need to be focused on this. John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest Americans to ever live, died in 1937. And when he died, listen to this. When he died, his assets equaled 1.5% of the United States' total economic output. Oh, you get that? One individual, his assets equaled 1.5% of the United States' total economic output. Now, if you happen to be in his downline, his progeny, um, you're like, woo-hoo, he's gone. And so they show up at the reading of his will, and he's got friends and family and associates that are all included in this will. So when the lawyer comes walking in uh, to begin the reading of his will, you don't want to be that guy, but you know everybody's thinking the same question. Somebody had the audacity to say, how much did he leave behind? To which his lawyer wisely responded, all of it. He didn't take any with him. All of it. Same for you. The Bible actually says the richer you are, the more pain you'll have. Because now you've got to maintain it all. Now you've got a bigger yard to cut. Now you've got more electronics to fix. Now you've got more stuff to worry about. Now you've got to worry about your kids are going to inherit your stuff. Are they going to be foolish with it? You leave it all behind. It all belongs to Goodwill. Number 3. The love of money. Now the love of money is 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 um the love of money is is too polite to make a direct assault on this but but the love of money implies that simplicity is inferior. It implies that simplicity is inferior. Oh that's so cute. Your 1990 Ford Taurus. Your you know iphone 6 i remember that like that was like so five years ago four years ago it implies that simplicity is inferior verse 8 but if we have food and clothing we will be content with these can you say that like what do you need beyond food and clothing and say yeah i'm all right i'm good i guess it depends who's cooking you know it's my mom's food all right you know if it's her mom's food oh i don't know simplicity and think about this guys when we think about life it really is pretty simple he's saying here you really don't need much to be sufficient the word here when he talks about uh, the way the hcsb translates it as food and clothing it's a little more comprehensive than that when it's when food yes you need you need nourishment to keep you healthy but when it, the word for clothing is actually a little more comprehensive for that it's, it's literally um, covering or shelter. So you have a covering for your body and you have a covering for your head. So you have a, you have a home, you have clothes. You're not naked and you're out of the elements and you have food. And he's just saying you don't need a whole lot of food, clothes, shelter. We know that life is a little more complicated than that. If you're going to drive in the United States, you need a vehicle and you need insurance. It's a little more complicated than that. But there's a world of difference between our needs and our greeds. And the problem, again, is I think uh, the last time I checked, everyone in here is an American, which means you are a narcissistic materialist. Okay? This is yes, this is no, and this is I don't, I don't like that. I don't like it. As Americans, we are in our DNA habitually um, blind to the fact that there is actually a difference between our needs and our greeds. I mean, like, if you really, really want something, what do you say? Oh, I need that. No, you'll actually survive quite okay without a cell phone. You can do it. You can make it without a computer. You might have one at work, but you might not need one at home. There's a difference between our needs and our needs. And so Paul is not here criticizing meeting your needs. He's not criticizing meeting your needs. And to be clear, Paul is not advocating for poverty, and against wealth. There is nothing immoral about wealth. What is immoral is the way that people use it. Rather, he is arguing for contentedness as opposed to covetousness. There's a world of difference. There are people who can have nice things and not be covetous and be content. And there are people who can have nice things and still want the latest and greatest. And they're showing that they're not content in what God has done. You know how I know that covetousness is a problem for us as a people? You know what one of the largest growth industries in the United States is? Think about this for a minute. If you want to invest in something, what's a no-brainer for you to invest in? Storage units. Anybody pass a storage unit on the way to church this morning? I did. And you all did too. We have so much stuff. We're willing to rent additional space to store stuff that we don't need. And so here's the question, if if life really is simple, if life really is simple, if we're saying that the love of money implies simplicity is inferior, if we had to, if this was a matter of our survival, how much of the stuff in your house could we get rid of today and you be okay? Anybody here think you could lose 10% of your stuff? I do. Anybody else? Just out of curiosity. Is there anyone here that thinks that you could lose more than 10% of your stuff and still be just fine? Anybody think they could lose 50% of their stuff? Where's it stop? Now listen, I'm not against God's providence in putting us on the wealthiest and healthiest nation in the world. We don't have to apologize for that. That is is a divine accident that we have just happened where we happen to be. I'm not going to apologize for the parents that I was born to. I'm not going to apologize for the, the things that God has providentially allowed to be in my life. But I don't need to allow that stuff to define me. I don't need to be covetous. And so he is contrasting. There is a foolishness that comes with chasing materialism. And there is a special delight that comes from being simple. And being content and just delighting in simplicity. Simple is better. Steve Jobs knew that with the iPhone. You don't need a lot of buttons, you just need one. Simple is better. And so if simplicity is really something for us to aim at, to fight against the love of money, how do we train ourselves to live more simply? Five things. You've got some white space there. Nothing here that is rocket science. I just think it's good for us to hear this. Number one, acknowledge that God owns it all. He owns it all. Every bit of it, every bit of it. I love the story about J.C. Penney. Uh, J.C. Penny was a man before he was a store. It's was named after a person. And uh, J.C. Penney was fabulously rich. He was also a believer. And so he trained himself to recognize God's ownership of everything that he had. And he got to a point where he was giving away 90% of his income and living on 10%. Now, he could live pretty well on his 10%. His 10% was much more than my 100%. But he was uh, so desiring because of his means to demonstrate sacrifice in supporting God and his work in the world that he donated 90% of his income to his church. I need to find one of his kids and see if they want to become a member at Northside and see if they've caught on to that. That's pretty awesome. God owns, God owns it all. And he's just as concerned about your spending habits as he is about your giving habits. Number two, And this is not just for the kids in the room. This is for the big kids too. Practice thankfulness for what you have. Have you, I don't even know what the latest iPhone is. Is it it seven? Is it seven? Okay. Any of you waiting with bated breath for the next release? There are people who do that. They camp out. They've got a perfectly good seven and they can't wait for the eight. And listen, I like toys too. I'm, that's fun. And it's just nuts. Be thankful for what you have. There are some people who um, lease cars because they don't ever want to drive anything that's got more than 10,000 miles on it. I love it when I, I meet an old fella. You can see that See that Chevy out there? 1,275,000 miles on that thing. That's great. There's nothing wrong with having a new truck. There's not. Unless that truck owns you instead of you owning the truck. Be thankful for what you have. Number three. We've already talked about this. Learn to distinguish between your needs and your wants. If everything is a need, you have a problem. Go see a doctor. Uh, your sickness is much worse than other people's. There's a difference between your needs and your wants. Number four, discipline yourself to spend less than you earn. Like, that should go without saying. If common sense was common, <laughs> we'd all be in a better spot. Spend less than you make. So if you, if you know, hey, I want to honor God with my giving. I'm going to give him 10%. I got 90% left. And I got this, I got retirement, I got health insurance, I got this. Plan for some margin. You have money left over in for anything except just left over. Don't spend more than you earn. Spend less than you earn. And number five, train yourself to give sacrificially. You know what giving demonstrates? That you don't think that you own it all and that you really are casting yourself on the Lord to provide for you, not your bank account. Sorry story for me is um, I've, I've been tithing for 23 years. Since I've been an adult, 25 years, 26 years. Um, I've, I have learned to live on 90%. 90% is normal, okay? So here's the problem. When we talk about getting stuck in a rut and flying on autopilot, I could, do, I could, I could live on 90% for the rest of my life and it, 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 there's no pinch, for me to learn to depend upon God more means that I feel it if it's 95%. You know, I'm sorry, I'm going the other way. I, I feel it if it's 85%, and I'm, I'm increasing what I'm giving, and I'm demonstrating dependence upon the Lord more. And so, I, I, listen, I love the J.C. Penney story. He didn't start out that way, and he didn't go from zero to 100. He, he gradually weaned himself off of stuff so that he could demonstrate where his priorities were. So giving sacrificially shows that it's not all about you and that you really do believe that God, who has provided you with what you already have, will make sure that he meets your needs. Number four and finally, the love of money imperils one's spiritual life. Look at verse 9 and 10. But those who want to be rich, which should give you a clue who this is written to, it could be rich who want to be richer, That's probably not the majority of the audience. The majority of the audience is probably poorer. Those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. The challenge for us when we talk about money is... um, To be greedy with your money is a socially acceptable sin. It's okay. The world's eyes. People will look at you funny if they find out that you're giving money away. And the challenge with this socially acceptable sin is while it may be socially acceptable, it can be spiritually terrible. Spiritually terrible. There are two results that he gives in verses 9 and 10, and neither of them are good. And so the challenge, I think, for us in our thinking is that there is a particular way that the world will say that you win. He who dies with the most toys wins. The question is this. Do you want to be like this guy? Because if winning is sinning, are we really winning? He's drinking tiger blood and he's got Adonis DNA, man. He's rocking and rolling. He's winning. I don't think so. And some of us like to put a veneer of a couple Bible verses over our spending habits and say that what we're doing is Christian stewardship. And we are chasing the wind just like this fellow. If winning is sinning, we're not really winning. Here's the two uh, potentially dangerous things that can happen when you love money if you're a Christian. And number one, this one will happen. The love of money as a Christian will be painful. It will be. You start to accumulate all this stuff, And then eventually you come to your senses and you go, oh my goodness, my priorities have been messed up. And you see this in verse 9. He says that uh, you fall into temptation and then you plunge into ruin and destruction. This sounds like, I mean, pardon the illustration, but it sounds like a really bad whitewater rafting trip down the river of life. You know, you intended to have a nice little picnic stroll along this wild and raging river and yet you're so focused on the river, keeping up with the Joneses, the culturally acceptable sins of being greedy with your stuff, that you're so focused on the river that you end up tripping and falling. The temptation, it says you fall. You don't just fall, it says you plunge. I mean, you're not just bobbing along happily along the river of life. You're being tumbled over, and you're hitting the rocks, and you're under the water. It says ruin and destruction. Those are, just a hint, those are not good things. You're in the washing machine of life being turned over. And you have done to yourself what you have asked God to never do to you. Lead us not into temptation. You don't need them to. You'll do just fine on your own. You'll tempt yourself and then you fall into the trap and you're plunged to ruin and destruction. He says that there are all kinds of foolish and harmful desires. And I'm just going to spell out two of these as we look at his second danger. We've said that the love of money for a Christian will be painful. There will come a point where you realize I have not honored the Lord by accumulating this I mean, it's too focused on myself, not focused enough on God, and there will be pain. But even worse, the love of money can be disastrous. He says it in verse 10. He highlights two specific ways in which this can be even more terrible than just being painful. It can be a disaster. First, in verse 10, he says that some, by craving it, <clears throat> have wandered away from the faith. In another place, Jesus himself says that you cannot serve God and mammon. You can only have one master. And there are some people who look like Christians, that smell like Christians, that talk like Christians, that act like Christians, but they end up exposing what their heart is really surrendered to, and it is not the Lord. It's money. And so they wander away, and it's not that they lost anything. They didn't truly have it in the first place. And it just takes a little time. Some people, kind of like the soil, they sprout up quick and they die right away. Some people hang on a little bit more. But over time, the desires of their heart really show where their allegiance is to and they wander away from the faith. They have accumulated all kinds of goods from this world, but they have not made any investment for the kingdom to come. Secondly, continuing our whitewater rafting analogy, not only have they fallen, not only have they been plunged, but look at how verse 10 ends. By craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. The word for pierce is literally impale impale. We were out in Arizona uh, earlier this summer, and there's a particular kind of, was it the yucca plant? Um, Rigid cactus, like baseball bat rigid. And a guy had just the week before been out mountain biking, turned a corner the wrong way, and ended up on one of those plants that impaled him. We're not talking about a flesh wound here. We're talking about vital organs. We're talking about massive blood and trauma. This is not something that you recover from. So it's not like, oh, well, he's just kind of wandered off. No, the end result of this can be eschatological death, ruin, destruction, many pains. They've fallen into the river. They've plunged over the waterfall, and at the base of the falls, there's some kind of device in which they have impaled themselves. And the challenge is, it's their own fault. Nobody pushed them. Nobody encouraged them. They didn't need it. And the thing that is so terrible is we end up where we began. Everybody is looking for gain. And these people finally think they have gotten the gain that they have sought, And they find that their greed is actually the greatest source of their undoing, not a source of blessing. And they have been blind to it until it's too late for them to repent. The challenge here this morning is not simply to offer investing advice to Christians with a couple Bible verses tacked on. The question is, where is the gospel in all of this? We can talk about very practical realities about how we live and what we do with our money and do we give and do we spend our money wisely, But where's the gospel? And the gospel is just under the surface. It's right there. Do you see the gospel in this passage? It's this. Is Jesus enough? We affirm that on Sunday morning. Maybe. We don't live like it the rest of the week. if I just had that promotion, if I just had a little bit more money, if I just had a nicer car, a bigger house, the corner office, if I just had something else, pontoon boat, vacation home, this, that or the other, is Jesus enough? It really is that simple. What you do with your money is a testimony to what you believe about the gospel. And for people who know that Jesus is enough, giving and spending are in the right priorities. They've got it down. It's only those that are unclear about the gospel that really struggle with their spending habits, and they probably don't give. Because the gospel's not found root in their heart in a way that transforms them. I close with this. Some of you have asked me, my, my personal email address, S. Davis1611. What in the world does that mean? Is that just random numbers that Google assigned you? No. Uh, if you know anything about Bible history, 1611 is when the King James Bible was created. doesn't have anything to do with that. Nothing to do with the King James Version. Psalm 16, verse 11, is a great verse that encourages us, be, encourages us to be future-focused in the grace that we will receive to God. As God has been gracious and good to us in the past, guess what? That's just the appetizer of things to come. He will be good and gracious and kind and merciful and loving and awesome even more in the future. our future goes infinitely this way. we started at a past that goes completely here and i want to read a couple of verses to you that i think tie in with this verse 5 and 6 before i get to psalm 16:11. psalm uh psalm 16:5 and 6. lord you are my portion and you are my cup of blessing. you hold my future. and the boundary lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. indeed I have a beautiful inheritance and everyone who has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ can claim this verse themselves. You have a beautiful inheritance. This doesn't have anything to do with finances. Does that encourage you this morning? You may end up on the want, need list in a variety of different ways. The Bible says you've got a beautiful inheritance and I'm tempted to believe the Bible more than I am to hear your whining. You have a beautiful inheritance. And listen to this, Verse 11. This is where my email address comes from, Psalm 1611. You reveal the path of life to me. He's made life known to us through Christ. In your presence is abundant joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God holds holds enough glory and treasure in his right hand to give to us all abundantly without him ever missing anything of his own that amazing it says he holds the mountains and the seas are but a drop in the palm of his hand he holds enough of his beautiful glorious treasures to just give what he has in his right hand to us and for it to be gloriously more than anything that we need so the challenge this morning is to reorient ourselves from the way that the world thinks to thinking how do we testify to the glorious truth of the gospel by how we approach how we handle our money Pray with me, please. Father, we do not like to admit this. We ask for your spirit to humble us and to help us come to grips with exactly how covetous we are. It is easy for us to affirm in the midst of corporate worship that you are enough. And then when we're paying our bills and we're fretting about our lifestyle, to act like you're not. There may be habits that we have that need to change. <clears throat> there may be simplicity that we need to pursue. Because you don't, you don't just tell us that we need to be obedient if we've adopted a simple lifestyle already. Now, obedience is important for all of us. There may be ways that we've made foolish decisions with the finances you have entrusted to us. But we need to be m- more serious about being more mature with so we can fully obey and be your disciples. Father, I just pray that as we've listened to your word and as we ask your spirit to search our hearts and our minds, our habits, that you will, by your spirit, give us the power to make changes that will honor you. We desire to honor you, not just with an hour on Sunday morning or with a tip that's put in a plane, but to honor you with all of our lives and with all that we have because we know it has come from your good hand. And we want to say grateful we are for your provision in Christ, in life, into the future. In Jesus' name we pray.